0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. So now we'll turn to God's Word, Acts chapter twenty-two, uh, verse thirty, uh, which is the end of chapter, very end of chapter twenty-two, mostly through the end of chapter twenty-three. Um, And for the the context here as as we're reading this, remember we are jumping in here in the middle of a a bigger story. The story of the end of Acts is Paul trying to get to Rome via Jerusalem, which is not at all an obvious move, but this is what, that was not good. Um, This is what he said he was going to do. He had said earlier in Acts, I must go to Rome. First, I must go to Jerusalem, and then I must go to Rome. And the problem was, Jerusalem was a dangerous place for Paul. Uh, Other Christians around the Mediterranean had warned him, if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. happen. You may be killed. You may be arrested. All kinds of things might happen. And Paul said, no, I have to go to Jerusalem. I I know I may get in trouble. And when he got there, he tried to to make a move of conciliation with the Jews who were concerned about him by going to, to offer some sacrifices in the temple to go through a traditional purification rite and help with that. And uh, it didn't work. He was seen in the temple and the mob got started. And so last time we saw the mob and we saw Paul getting rescued from the mob by the Roman soldiers. And then speaking to them um, in defense of, of what he had been doing and who he was. And that didn't really, it didn't really work either. They kept up with the mob and the soldiers had to rescue him. And so now we jump in uh, with Paul in the, in the control of the soldiers, but the Roman Tribune really wondering what in the world is going on. So as we listen to Acts today, this is, this is really like a, a thrilling, this is like a spy thriller right now uh, that we're gonna read. And yet I want you to listen to it, not just for the, the thrill of it, but for the question of what is this for us today? What does this story, the action and adventure, tell us for what it means to live with God today? So let's read Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you. Uh, that you gave us, give us this word written so long ago, that it might still be something for us today. We pray now that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this word would not merely be interest or information for our heads, but transformation for our hearts, changing the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Suzanne and I have recently finished watching a most excellent TV show, um, called Sherlock. Uh, Sherlock as you might guess is based on the uh, the, the work of the, the character of Sherlock Holmes from the, the mystery novels by Arthur Conan Doyle. I, I haven't, truthfully confession, I have not read the original Sherlock so I, don't, I can't testify to the accuracy of Sherlock but it's quite a TV show. Um, it, is, it is a wonderful TV show and one of the things that's great about Sherlock is uh, you know, when we think of, of traditional Sherlock Holmes, at least I've always thought of him as a detective, looking at clues, making deductions, following logic, and he certainly does that in the show. It's, it's set in modern, uh, a modern setting of Sherlock, but uh, he, he makes deductions and he's brilliant and he figures things out, but Sherlock the TV show also has a lot of action. It's, it's a spy thriller as well. Like there's, there's government spies and there's, there's crises. And, and inevitably in these episodes, uh, there's the action has to happen really fast. And Sherlock is trying to figure out what to do so he can save somebody. And he's trying to figure out the clues and all these things are happening. And there's all these threats and all these attacks, but Sherlock is not so much, a, he's not so much an action fighting hero. He does fight a little bit, but mostly, he's a, he's a mental hero. And you see Sherlock's mind racing through all these possibilities, trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together so that he can save somebody. somebody there's going to be a bomb that's going to blow up, or somebody's going to be killed, or something's going to happen. And Sherlock has to figure everything out to save them. And there's, there's a little bit of this feeling here in Acts of all this stuff going on and, and figuring out, like, can we figure out, can Paul figure out a way get out of this because there's all these threats. First of all, Paul is imprisoned by the Romans. These were not, these were not nice people. If you were here last week, you heard that when the Roman Tribune couldn't figure out why people were attacking Paul, he decided to flog him just to figure out why he was being attacked. Like this is not, this is not nice friendly people taking care of Paul. But more than the Romans, we've also got the Jewish leaders, the high priests, the Sadducees, and their people. They have stirred up this mob. And we've seen these people before in Acts. These were the same people that took Stephen, one of the first followers of Jesus, one of the first deacons, servants of the church, and put him on trial under trumped-up charges and ended up stoning him. These are people who put the apostles in prison earlier in Acts and tried to get them killed. So there's a threat and then you've got this other group of people, these 40 men who bind themselves with a, a conspiracy, an oath to not eat or drink. They're desperate men out to kill Paul. So there's all these threats and Paul, and, and Paul was, how, how's Paul gonna do it? How's he gonna survive? How's he gonna make it through Jerusalem? Survive, let alone make it to Rome where he wants to go. And yet when we read this story, one of the things that's interesting is that Paul doesn't actually do much. Like all this stuff is just happening. And Paul, he does, make, he does make that one clever comment in front of the council where he manages to divide the council in half and start an argument there. But basically, Paul doesn't do much. He's kind of passive here. And Paul doesn't really say much. So what, what is the message here for us today? What is the main point? We see all this intrigue. We see all these happenings. The detailed account, the thriller. And I think right in the middle, we find one place where God speaks. It's the only thing that God says here. And Paul doesn't say much. But chapter 23, verse 11, just slipped in there in the middle of the action. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That was God's direct message to Paul when he was in prison, when he was under threat from every side. And that, I believe, is God's message for us today as well. As individuals, as a community, that we must take courage. Why are we taking courage? For what are we taking courage? We're taking courage for the sake of God's mission for the sake of God's kingdom advancing in the world. This is what our courage is for. But how? God does not give Paul instructions on what he's supposed to do. He just says, take courage. In effect, God is saying to Paul, I've got that. I've got this. I've got this under control. You just hang in there. I'm going to make you move to Rome. And as we read through this and we think about it, we see that that really is the truth Of of what's going on. The truth for us, we can take courage because God is using all kinds of different people to accomplish his purposes. Even some people that we would be surprised by. So our hope this morning is not the hope of Sherlock. It's not the hope that by our intelligence we can figure something out and we can get to a solution to help people out, to save them, to solve something. Instead our hope is in the God who sees things far more than Sherlock ever could and has far more power than any of us have but is working those pieces together to make something work out, to fit together the pieces of the puzzle to accomplish his purposes for us, his purposes for his church, his purposes for this world. And because God is the one who is doing it, we can take courage in that. So let's see, let's see how this plays out through, through this narrative. And here we see three groups of people throughout this narrative that God is using to accomplish his purposes. First, God uses his very enemies to accomplish his purposes. And then, God uses friends to accomplish his purposes. And finally, God even uses government to accomplish his purposes. So let's see, God uses enemies, God uses friends, God uses governments. First, the enemies. If you've, if, you've noted, if, you've, uh, if you've gone through our neighborhood Bible study, and you've gone through Mark in our neighborhood Bible study, or if you've just read uh, through the, the, the gospels, the accounts of Jesus on your own, or you're familiar with them growing up in church or whatever, if you know much about the life of Jesus, you know that the Pharisees were not on Jesus's side. Throughout the gospels, throughout the accounts of Jesus, the Pharisees are like enemy number one they're, they're the ones Jesus is always disputing with. They're the ones who ultimately get together with the Sadducees and the Herodians and they figure out a way to get him killed. They stir up the crowds. The Pharisees are not on his side. And yet, what do we have here in this council? We have the Sadducees and the Pharisees together. These were two political parties um, in in ancient in, in first century Judaism. And the Sadducees were like the priests and the temple people the Pharisees were like the teachers of the law, and a little bit more connected with the common man, too. They were, all, they were all respected. There were plenty of other Jews who weren't either Pharisees or Sadducees. But the Pharisees, were they were teachers, they were law followers, they were rule followers. But the Sadducees were the ones with the temple, and the power, and the priests, and a little bit more likely to collaborate with the Romans and that kind of thing. But together, they were involved in the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. So they come together to try Paul. And... All of them, none of them are really on Paul's side. Remember, the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus. They don't like what Paul is saying about the, the role of the Old Testament law. The Pharisees would be fine with new converts, but they would want them to become Jews first. And the Pharisees in this council wouldn't have been believers in Jesus either. So they didn't think much of Jesus. They certainly didn't think much of Paul. And so he's on trial, but he drops this line uh, that it's, uh, in, verse, in verse 6, he says, Paul, Paul just dive, jumps right in. He says, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And as it goes on to explain there in verse 8, this was an issue because the Sadducees, the like power political type party, they didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They were not as what we would think of religious as the Pharisees. And so, Paul has just jumped right into this tension of people who are working together, but, but sometimes get divided. In, in modern political terms, it's kind of like, not exactly, nothing's exactly, but it's kind of like, you know, you've got Republicans and you've got Libertarians. And a lot of times, they, they get together, and they, they may vote the same way and that kind of thing. But if you get a group of Republicans and Libertarians together, and you say the right things, you might get a fight going on. Right, you, you can do that, those of you who follow politics. I'm not, I'm not making any political commendation or judgment either way there. I'm just saying you've got people who work together, we know this, but you can divide their allegiance if you say the right things. And that's exactly what Paul does here. And so what's the outcome? The outcome is that the Pharisees basically rescue Paul out of this. Like, what are we, you know what? We didn't like Paul before, but we really don't like these Sadducees right now. We are not happy with these sessions. Maybe Paul's right, maybe something's happened. We can't can't let this go down the way it is. And so they start fighting with each other. The upshot of this is that what we see from the perspective of outside the story is that God has used his enemies to rescue Paul out of their very own hands. He caused division amongst the enemies. They've started fighting among themselves. These people, this council, this political gathering that was gonna try to get Paul executed, God turned it around and used it to get Paul out of there. He used their disputes within themselves. God is so powerful that he can take even his enemies, even the church's enemies, even Paul's enemies and use them for his own purposes to get Paul out of that council, back into the hands of the Romans. Why he's in the hands of the Romans, we'll get there when God starts using governments. But what does this mean for us that God uses enemies. The biggest thing for us to realize here when we see God using his enemies is to remember who we all are ourselves. Because notice what Paul said here. He, said he, he makes his play by being himself a Pharisee. Paul has previously acknowledged that he was a persecutor of the church. He was himself an enemy of God. He did not find God on his own. All of us at one time, the Bible tells us that we were all collectively, individually and collectively, we were all opposed to God. It is only by God's grace that we come in to be part of his family, that we come to participate in his mission. So this morning, if you're thinking, I am not good enough for God's mission. I am no Paul that can stand up and take heart, carry the gospel to a far nation. What was a Pharisee who persecuted the church, and God grabbed hold of him? Because this is the God that we worship, the God that takes his enemies and turns enemies into friends, turns enemies into servants. He uses enemies for his purpose and ultimately brings them into his family. We don't know who of these Pharisees that were in the council that day if later on some of them went home and said, you know what, I think Paul was right. We don't know about these Pharisees, but we know of other Pharisees. We know of Nicodemus back in the Gospel. He was a Pharisee. He became a follower of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea probably was one of the Pharisees. He became a follower of Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee. He became a follower of Jesus. And so this morning, even if you feel far away from Jesus, even if you feel like you've done things against him, against Christians... Jesus is not far from you. He can take you and bring him back into your fa- his family. He is waiting for you with forgiveness and reconciliation and a new mission and purpose for your life. And so that is the first call for us when we see that God uses enemies here to realize who we are, that we too, however far we have strayed, can come back to God and walk in his family with his community. It also affects the way we treat others who right now seem to be opposing God opposing us, making our lives difficult. Whether we're talking in the big picture, countries, governments that are persecuting Christians in other places that prevent them from meeting freely, that put them in prison. Whether we're talking in a smaller level, people that just harass us and annoy us, people that make fun of our faith, people that aren't interested in what we're doing, that sometimes make it difficult to do the things that we want to do as Christians, big or small, Whoever our enemies seem to be in the time, we know that our calling is to pray for them because God can use them for his own purposes. So we pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us just as Jesus commanded because we can take courage because God is using even his enemies. And then the happier one, of course, is that God uses his friends. We see him using the Pharisees to get Paul out of there, but Paul is not out of the woods yet. There's the plot to take his life and then, Paul's nephew appears. Verse 16, out of nowhere, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. This is the only thing we know in the Bible about Paul's family. We, we have never heard of this young man before. We will not hear of him again in the Bible. We don't know about Paul's relationship with his sister. We don't know about his relationship with his nephew. We simply have no idea. And yet, in the, in the uh, clearly, this, this young man is on Paul's side. He wants to help him. He wants to save him. He, he goes into the Roman barracks to alert him to this plot. And so we see in the very lack of information about relationship, the only thing we can see is God's hand at work again. We see that as God is the one who put Paul's nephew in the right place to hear of the plot and then moved him to go and tell Paul, and to tell the Tribune, and to be clear about what he had heard, that God has his people everywhere, and God is at work. So when we're feeling burdened, when we're feeling discouraged, when we don't know where, how life is going, you know, we've talked about, I mentioned persecution in other countries, and we've got kind of the spy thriller going on, and talked about Sherlock and solving mysteries. Of course, in, in day-to-day life, most of us don't feel those things. The trials for which we need courage are much smaller, in, in the big picture terms, but no less real to us, no less challenging to us. The trials of relationships, how are we going to make it through in, in friendships with other people, co-workers, family members, navigating these relationships, caring for those who need help, caring for children, caring for aging parents, caring for people who are sick, How are we going to deal with the trials of, of, of COVID and working through this time of uncertainty and how can we love one another well by trying not to get other people sick but continuing to do the things we need to do when we don't know who's sick and who's not? It can be overwhelming, even in the small scale. And through all of this, God says, take courage. Whatever trials you may be facing, big or small, you can take courage. Why? Because God is using his people. God is using his friends your friends, your family, his friends, his family, God's family comes together to help one another out, to support one another, to take care of one another. And so the encouragement for us, beyond the, 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 the exhortation and encouragement, the reminder to take courage, is also a calling to engage in that community of friendship. This is why we want to be a resurrection community. This is why we are a community that connects with God and connects with one another. We were not meant to walk through this life alone. That is not how God works. That is not how God created us. That is not how God intends us for us to live. But this mission that we see Paul carrying out here, the mission that God tells him to testify in Jerusalem and then to testify in Rome, ultimately, this is a mission for all of us. This is a mission for the church working together. And God has given us one another to play different roles, to help one another out in that. And so the the reminder here, as we see God using friends to accomplish this, is that we need to invest. We need to invest in community with one another. We need to seek relationships, whether through the formal structures of the church, through the coming-to-Sunday worship, through the Bible studies, through the discipleship cohorts, or whether through the informal relationships inside and outside of the church. We look for opportunities to serve, to help one another. We look out for those who are in need and say, can I help you with something? And we also have to be willing to receive, to tell other people, you know what? I need help. I really don't know what's going on right now. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I need somebody to help me with these kids. I need somebody to help me fix up this house. I need somebody to help me find a job. I need somebody to help me share God's love with these friends. We have to offer those to one another and receive from one another the help. So God uses enemies, God uses friends, and finally God uses governments. Again, here in Acts, we see the incredibly realistic picture of what government is. This is no perfect government that the Romans have here. Did you catch, did you catch Lysias's? Lysias is the tribune. Did you catch his letter to Felix? I love this. In verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen." No, he had not learned that he was a Roman citizen. That came later. Lysias is not telling the truth here. Lysias did not set out to rescue Paul because he was a Roman citizen. He set out to put down a riot that was going on on the Temple Square. Like, that's what he was doing. And yet, not surprisingly, he, he paints himself in a pretty good light here. Now there's some truth to it when he goes on to say, when it was disc- in verse 30, when it was disclosed to me there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. I mean, to be fair to Lysias, even though he, he stretches what he did a little bit, paints himself in a good light, basically he, he treated Paul fairly here. In fact, Lysias invested a fairly significant uh, investment of Roman soldiers to protect Paul. He sent over 200 soldiers to make sure Paul stayed safe. And so God is using the Roman government who, I mean, Paul has asserted his Roman citizenship that has something they should care about, but still, from everything we know of ancient history, the Romans were not the nicest people. And this guy, uh, that's an understatement. Uh, This tribune, Lysias, he could have just said, forget it. He He could have not rescued Paul in the first place. He could have just said, oh, you want to find out more? I'll send him back down and let him get ambushed. Oh, too bad. Couldn't have seen that coming. Um, all kinds of things Paul, uh, Lysias the Tribune could have done. And yet, the, the story here is not about the wonders of Lysias. It's about the God who is using this government for his purpose. Because fundamentally, Rome's concern here is for peace, order, not to have too much turmoil. That, let, let's make, there's trouble in Jerusalem with Paul here. Let's take him to Caesarea. They can go up there where there's not going to be a mob. And some concern for their citizens. He is a Roman citizen. We should protect him. But what is God doing with this? God is the one at work ultimately using the Roman soldiers, transferring Paul to Caesarea, out of the hands of the Jews in Jerusalem, so that Paul can go to Rome. It hasn't happened yet. We'll see it after Paul has several more hearings and several more years actually in Caesarea. But Paul is going to exercise his rights as a citizen to appeal to Caesar. And that is how he is going to end up moving to Rome. But right now, I don't think Paul had any idea that that was going to happen. I don't think Paul knew what was happening. He just knew that God had said, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And so he just does what's right in front of him. He gets word of the, of the plot. He tells the tribune. tribune says, all right, you're going to Caesarea. Paul's, all right, here I go. We'll see what happens in Caesarea because he knows that God is at work. And God can use even an evil pagan Roman government to accomplish his purposes of safely moving Paul out of the hands of those who are opposing him, out of the hands of those who want to kill him, to get him to Rome, where he wants Paul to continue his mission, continue the mission of expanding the kingdom of God in Rome. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as we think about government and politics? It, it doesn't mean anything about who we should vote for. Sorry to disappoint. Told you that last week. There's not much in there telling you who you should vote for. But it does tell us about how we should approach politics and how much stake we should put in them and how much fear we should put in them. That when we see political turmoil, when we see governments that are not always doing what is right, even our own government is not always doing what is right. Sometimes it's like the Roman government, trying to keep peace, trying to protect the citizen, not really looking out for the kingdom of God. And yet the call to us is to take courage. Instead of looking for hope in political salvation, looking for hope from a political leader, we look, to our hope to, for, we look for our hope to the God who uses the leaders even of this world to accomplish his purposes. I, in my prayer earlier, I, I mentioned the, the proverb that says, "In the, hand of the, the heart of the king is like water in the hand of God. That no matter who is the president of the United States, no matter who is the prime minister of Germany, No matter who is the leader of China or India or Japan, wherever uh, God's people are, God is the one who is ultimately in charge. God is the one who can carry out his purposes. And for us, when we get caught up in the political turmoil of the day, yes, we exercise our rights as citizens. That is what Paul did as well. We exercise them with wisdom, seeking justice, seeking love the best we can, but ultimately, Acts is reminding us here that God is the one who is working. God is the one who told Paul to take courage. God is the one who told him he was going to end up in Rome. And so God is the one who is working through the actions of the Roman Tribune, getting Paul out of Jerusalem, moving him towards Caesarea, from where he will go on to Rome. And so we do not have to be dismayed. We do not have to be discouraged. Whatever may happen in the world of politics, we keep our eyes on Jesus. And in that, we can walk together, even through differing political opinions as a church, as a community, because our hope is not in politics. That's not where our ultimate hope rests. Our ultimate hope rests in the goodness of God, in his power, in his gospel. That for all of us who become part of this community, who've been baptized as Mason was this morning, our hope is in Jesus having washed away our sins. That is our hope. That is where we find our foundation. That is how we walk together as a community, focused on our mission of moving forward for the kingdom of God, seeking to connect people with God and one another throughout Virginia Beach, that we may see more people come to know him and find hope and peace in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are great over all the kings of this world that you can use even the kings of this world for your own purposes. And we do not have to trouble ourselves with that, but we can take courage in what you are doing and trust that you will carry it out. We pray that you would sink this truth deep into our hearts this day, uh, this day, this week, and the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.